Well, I'm back. Actually, your real applause needs to go to Pastor Bill. So I've asked myself before, man, when you put 10, 15, believe it or not, 20 hours into what we're about to do, what happens when it's 7.30 and you realize you can't do this? What is plan B? And plan B is Bill Malone. So I hated to be that guy, but I was that guy. And so, um, yeah, watched on video. Bill did a tremendous job. And so Bill is my, my forever hero. And so just want to publicly call that out that Bill Malone rocks. So this is the sermon that I was supposed to give two weeks ago, and I don't even know what was going on. It was just this weird combination of stuff. Um, And so while in its guts this will be the same, I for sure made changes to a line where Bill went two weeks ago and where Dustin went last week. And one of the points that Dustin made was that this thing that we call evangelism, right, it feels heavy. It feels like a burden. It's this thing that can scare us. And Dustin built upon that to say that, you know, evangelism, we often think of it as a decision point. It's a process. It's a process with steps. And so I'm going I'm to start where Dustin left off, but let me do that by telling you a story. A number of years ago, we... We're going to church in Lidditz, but we lived in Ephrata. So actually, when Cindy and I and our family went to South America's missionaries, our sending church was in Lidditz. And for us to drive that seven or so miles between Ephrata and Lidditz, the first mile, half mile was in the borough. And then after that, it was literally mile after mile of farm after farm. And one Sunday morning, going to church, came around a corner and there were cows out in the middle of the road. And so we called 911 and they acted like they kind of knew the story already. And so someone had obviously called before us. But this, th- these cows were on the backside of a hill. And so someone coming over that hill, moving quickly, not good for the cow, not good for the person inside the car. And so called 911. But then about three of us started to try to get these cows back into their pasture. And so there were maybe three of us, and maybe there were, there were four cows on the road. And so we were able to get three of the cows into the pasture. But as we turned to, to, to move towards that last cow who was behind us, that cow said, I'm out of here, and starts to run down the road. And just at that moment, the cops pull up and nudge that cow into the gate where that cow needed to be. That's how we know farming here in Lancaster. Animals are supposed to stay inside the fence. Animals outside the fence, that's a problem. And that's how, if we're not careful, that we can think about evangelism inside the church. That there are those that are in, there are those that are out. And evangelism is not happening until someone who is out finds their way in. 
But the way that we farm in Lancaster County is very, very different from how they farm out west. We might be able to fence in 20 acres, 30 acres, maybe even 70 acres, but how do you fence in 70 square miles of open range? How do you fence in 700 square miles of open range? And the simple answer is you don't. So how does that rancher living in New Mexico or living in Arizona, how do they not get a call in the middle of the the night that, hey, these animals carrying your brand have decided to walk off and they're now three states away? Well, it's all about proximity to the water source. A rancher might have animals at the water source drinking from the source might have animals that are a couple hundred meters away from the source, might have animals that are miles from the water source, but they will all be within proximity to the water source because the water source is life. And so to bring this illustration home for us, the thing about proximity to the source The exact same thing holds true when we talk about evangelism. That every single person that you come across in the course of your day is in proximity to the source, to the source of life, to God. Some people are at the source, drinking deeply from the source, are experiencing life at the source Some are nearby the source, some are miles away from the source, some are are trying to get as far away from the source as they can. And somewhere along the way, we've come to believe that evangelism has not happened unless a person moves across the open range and gets to the source. That evangelism is, is, is getting a person from wherever they are all the way to the source, we've bought into this myth that evangelism only happens if it results in that person making a decision to enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ. We've come to believe that our part in evangelism is about the results when our part in evangelism is about the process. And so while it's our desire to to see people find life at the source, they may have meters to go, they may have miles to go before they get to the source. And evangelism is. The the, the key word of, of the gospel, what the gospel means, is good news. It's the same root word from which we get the word evangelism. So in its most simple, in its most literal sense, evangelism is announcing the good news. That in our hurt, in our pain, in our struggles, in our questions, in our doubts, in our sin, that God has loved us through his son Jesus. And so for us, we are called to announce the good news. Be it by grabbing a drink with someone, sitting down having lunch with someone, listening to them share the pain in in their life, saying, hey, as you share with me, can I pray for you for that thing right now? By opening the scripture with someone that sees in you a hope that they do not have. By sitting with someone who, who 
is, is wanting desperately to know how life works best and you're able to open your Bible and show them that from the scripture by sharing an encouraging word with someone, by sharing a hug. And that's the point of this series. That evangelism is, in the way that God has uniquely gifted you, the way that God has uniquely shaped you and wired you, evangelism is showing God's love for us through the good news of Jesus in in the face of the bad news that bombards our lives. And quite honestly, if a person does not know Jesus, they cannot have the bomb-proof hope in the face of the bad news that is, I guarantee you, that is present in their lives. And so this question for us when it comes to evangelism is, what can I do, what can I say that God could use that to help that person that God has put into our lives to take maybe one step, two steps, maybe 10 steps toward him, toward the source of life. Even if we share and that person does not take a step, our responsibility is to share. What that person does with that good news, that's their responsibility. And the goal of this series is to allow you to see that you can do this. You can grab coffee with someone. You can sit down and listen to someone share about something that they're navigating in their lives. You can share the simple hope that you found in Jesus. And that's how this evangelism thing works. It is caring enough to see the need in someone's life. To hear the whispers of pain in their life. To to hear maybe the screams of pain in their lives. Will you look for the need? Will, Will you look for where somebody is stuck? Will you look for how the bad news that is in someone's life is clouding their ability to see the good news of Jesus and how that good news will always breathe hope into their situation. This is evangelism. This is what Jesus did. But Jesus does not deliver the hope of the good news from afar. Jesus does not deliver the hope of the good news via email. So the question that we're going to wrestle with this morning is, how does Jesus deliver the hope of the good news? Right. So to put a point on that, Where's the mess? Where's Jesus? To make that personal, where are we supposed to be? So this morning we're looking at four stories coming out of Luke chapter 7. So Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 1. It says, when Jesus had finished saying all this to the people, he returned to Capernaum. At that time, the highly valued slave of a Roman officer was sick and near death. When the officer heard about Jesus, he sent some respected Jewish elders to ask him to come and heal his slave. So they they earnestly begged Jesus to help the man. If anyone deserves your help, he does, they said. For he loves the Jewish people and even built a synagogue for us. 
So Jesus went with them, but just before they arrived at the house, the officer sent some friends to say, Lord, don't trouble yourself by coming to my home, for I am not worthy of such an honor. I'm not even worthy to come and meet you. Just say the word from where you are, and my servant will be healed. I know this because I am under the authority of my superior officers, and I have authority over my soldiers. I only need to say go, and they go, or come, and they come. And if I say to my slaves, do this, they do it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed. Turning to the crowd that was following him, he said, I tell you, I haven't seen faith like this in all of Israel. And when the officer's friends returned to his house, they found the slave completely healed. So understand this, that by the Jewish rules, Jesus should not be going into this Roman officer's house because this Roman officer is not Jewish. He's a Gentile sinner, and and the Roman officer knows this, knows that this is a problem for Jesus. That's why he says, don't trouble yourself by coming to my home, for I am not worthy of such an honor. And while Jesus ends up healing this Roman officer slave from a distance, Jesus is ready and willing to go into this Gentile sinner's house. Jesus is ready to get messy. Story two, Luke 7, verse 11. Soon afterward, Jesus went with his disciples to the village of Nain. And a large crowd followed him. A funeral procession was coming out as as he approached the village gate. The young man who had died was a widow's only son, and a large crowd from the village was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart overflowed with compassion. I love that. Don't cry, he said. Then he walked over to the coffin and touched it, and the bearer stopped. Young man, he said, I tell you, get up. Then the dead boy sat up again and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. Great fear swept the crowd, and they praised God, saying, A mighty prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people today. And the news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding countryside. So notice that the story calls out that Jesus touched the coffin. Jesus doesn't have to do this. By the Jewish rules, Numbers 19, verse 11, for Jesus to touch that coffin that makes him ceremonially unclean. Jesus could have done exactly what he did in the case of Lazarus, where he calls Lazarus out of the grave with a shout, but Jesus goes up to the coffin and he touches it. Jesus gets messy. There's another thing for us here. Don't miss the fact that this Roman officer has everything. As a man living in a male-dominated society, the world is his oyster. He's got money. He's got power. He's got connections. He has everything going for him. But this widow has nothing. 
As, as a female living in a male-dominated society, her economic viability is tied up in her husband, but he's gone. He's dead. She's a widow. So her economic viability is now tied up in her son, and he has just died. So while the Roman officer has power, she's powerless. While the Roman officer has money, she doesn't. While the Roman officer is connected She's not. These two people are on opposite sides of the spectrum. The Roman officer has everything in the world going for him. This widow's world has just completely fallen apart. Two people, opposite sides of the spectrum, both are being slammed with the bad news of this life, with the mess of this life. And Jesus goes to them both. Luke 7, verse 18. The disciples of John the Baptist told John about everything that Jesus was doing. So John called for two of his disciples and he sent them to the Lord to ask him, are you the Messiah we've been expecting or should we keep looking for someone else? John's two disciples found Jesus and said to him, John the Baptist sent us to ask, are you the Messiah that we've been expecting Or should we keep looking for someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many people of their diseases, illnesses, and evil spirits, and he restored sight to the many who were blind. Then he told John's disciples, go back to John and tell him what you've seen and heard. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised to life, and the good news is being preached to the poor. And tell him, God blesses those who do not turn away because of me. John the Baptist is having his doubts. He's locked in prison. This old Jesus thing is not going the way that he expected it to go. And so he's asking questions Jesus, where's the revolution? Jesus, When are you going to kickstart your reign in power? Jesus, when are you going to throw out these Romans? Jesus, when are you going to tear down this corrupt religious system? Jesus, am I going to get out of prison alive? Jesus, are you the Messiah? And Jesus says to John's followers, go back and tell John what you see. And what they see is Jesus getting messy. They see Jesus mixing it up with the sick and the dying and the oppressed. Jesus is bringing the good news to those who are in the clutches of the bad news. Jesus is saying to John, yes, I am the Messiah. Yes, I am the promised Savior. Don't turn away just because I am not meeting your expectations. Story 4, Luke 7, verse 36, and I am not going to read this because Bill did an excellent job with this two weeks ago. But in summary, it's the story of, the text says, an immoral woman, most likely a prostitute. And as Jesus is invited into this house of this religious leader, and as he's eating, she comes in, And she pours expensive perfume out onto his feet. 
tears are running down her face onto his feet. And in a very intimate act for that day, she undoes her hair and she wipes Christ's feet with her own hair. Realize that the perfume that she uses, expensive perfume is how the the story calls it out. That perfume that she's pouring onto Jesus' feet is most likely it's been paid with the money that's come from hookup after hookup after hookup. In this story, once again, Jesus is getting messy. This prostitute is literally pouring out the wages of her sin onto Jesus. And as, as her tears flow down her cheeks, as she, as she wipes Christ's feet with her hair, the Pharisee is scandalized and says, why is Jesus allowing this sinner to touch him? But this is exactly the reason that Jesus has come. He's getting dirty. He's getting messy so that she can walk away clean. She walks away with her sins forgiven. And so if we go back to that spectrum that we talked about earlier, these stories of John the Baptist and this immoral woman give us more data points for our spectrum. John the Baptist, who Jesus says in verse 28 of Luke 7, we didn't read that, but Jesus says that of all who have ever lived, none is greater than John. Meaning that John has the most privileged job ever in that he gets to be the one that announces that the Messiah, the Savior of the world, the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world has come. And this prostitute has the worst job ever in allowing herself to be taken advantage of, allowing herself to be abused, allowing herself to be used. These two, John the Baptist and this prostitute, are on opposite sides of the spectrum. And the fact that these four people are on opposite sides of the spectrum, they are all being slammed with the bad news of this life, all being slammed with the mess of this life. And Luke is giving us this story back to back to back to back because he wants you to see something. Did you pick up on it? If we go back to our questions, how does Jesus deliver the hope of the good news? Where's the mess? Where's Jesus? Where are we supposed to be? There's no way for you to read these four stories and and escape the conclusion that Jesus, he's right in the middle of the mess. Luke wants us to see that there is no one beyond God's grace, God's mercy, and God's forgiveness. And by giving us these four extremes, Luke is telling us that no matter where a person falls on the spectrum, no matter how rich, no matter how powerful, no matter how poor, no matter how how powerless, no matter the accomplishments, no matter the questions, no matter the doubt, no matter the sin, everyone, and that includes you and I, Everyone needs the good news of Jesus. 
And so by, by showing us these extremes in the human condition, Luke is showing us that you and I are to offer in the same way that Jesus does. We are to offer the good news of Christ, the hope that we have in Jesus to everyone. And that will demand that you get messy. That will demand that you get involved, that, that you get eyeball to eyeball with the need and the hurt and the pain and the questions and the doubts and the struggle and the sin of those that God has placed into your life. I keep referencing this book, Get Real. The author, John Leonard, says, Christ is calling us not just to talk about God's love for sinners, but to actually step down into the world and show it. Each time that Jesus does that, steps down into the suffering of this world in Luke chapter 7, steps into that suffering to show God's love for sinners, did you pick up on the fact that there is a greater, more clear revelation of who he is? You see that in our stories? So first story, right? The Roman officer, Jesus is revealed as a healer. The story of the widow, Jesus is revealed as a mighty prophet. The story of John the Baptist, Jesus is revealed as the Messiah. And the story of the immoral woman, Jesus is revealed as God himself because only God can forgive sins. So if we go back to our questions, how does Jesus deliver the hope of the good news? Where's the mess? Where's Jesus? And he is right in the middle of the mess. Where are you and I supposed to be? You and I are supposed to be right in the middle of the mess too. And that's important for us because as we talk about our own getting messy, our own getting involved, our own getting dirty, our own getting eyeball to eyeball with the need and the hurt and the pain and the questions and the doubt and the struggles and the sin of the people that God has placed into our lives, that you can know that as you get messy, that as you get involved, the direct implication is that Jesus gets revealed with a greater clarity. You can say it this way, that as you get dirty, as you get messy, you will have greater opportunities to tangibly, concretely show the love of Jesus and to share your own personal hope in Jesus. But the question of the morning is, will you? So you might ask me the question, well, Brian, well, how do I do that? And I'm learning that wise pastors, I'm not quite there yet, but wise pastors answer questions with questions. And so I would ask you, how has God wired you? Can you hang out with that friend who's struggling with the need? who sees something in your life, the hope that you have, and they've got questions. 
Can you grab lunch with someone who has maybe shared something at work and you can tell there's a deep pain there and you just want to provide a listening ear and you're listening for opportunities to point them toward your Jesus? Can you sit down over a cup of coffee and encourage someone that is struggling? Can you, and this is a stretch for some of us, can you reach out and give somebody a hug? The reality is, you can do this, but you have to be willing to get messy. John Leonard says it this way, do you know why the world has stopped listening to the gospel? Because we want to share in the least inconvenient the least costly way. We want to save messy people at a distance. And so are you willing to do what Jesus did? Are you willing to get messy, to actually step down into the suffering of this world to show Christ's love for sinners? You might say, Brian, that's tough. I've got my own mess. I don't like messes. Messes are uncomfortable. Messes are unpredictable. Messes can't be controlled. Do you realize what you are asking me to do? But I'm not asking you. Jesus is asking you. Remember, you are called to announce the good news, to share your hope in Jesus. You are not responsible for what that person does with that good news. Yet that person cannot come to that crossroads of what do I do with this good news if we fail to share. Remember that as you step out into the toughness of other people's messes, That when Jesus gives us the great commission, which is our mission statement, as a church, you don't get to choose your mission statement. Jesus has already given that to us in Matthew 28. And the way that he ends that mandate to us is he says, be sure of this. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Meaning that as we step out, we do not go it alone. Meaning as we step out, we have the power of God, the power of the Holy Spirit with us, guiding us, guiding our words. And so to come back to that prior slide, are you willing to do what Jesus did? Are you willing to get messy? Are you willing to get involved and step down into the suffering of this world to show Christ's love for sinners. Of the many, many needs and the many, many lives around you, to whom specifically is God calling you to announce the good news to? Who is God calling you to grab lunch with, to grab a coffee with, to give a hug to so that through that conversation if a window opens that you can share the hope that you found to be true in Jesus.
So I'm going to let that question hang there, and that's how we're going to end. And so I would invite you to give us a few moments here of quiet. I invite you to close your eyes and ask God to give you a name, to put someone on your heart, to put someone on your mind, to ask God where he would have you get messy. Let's close our eyes and go quiet. Father God, we thank you. As we've been singing, as we've been talking over these last few minutes, as we are about to sing, you are the God who is mighty to save. You are the God who will forever be glorified. You are the God who stands in a righteousness and in a holiness that if we could partake it ourselves would strike us dead on the spot. You are so other and our lives are full of questions and doubts and struggles and sin but you have provided a way, a way of grace and mercy and love and forgiveness through your son Jesus. as we face the bad news that invariably comes because we live in a fallen world, you have given us a hope because of how you have loved us through your son Jesus because of the gospel. A love that you want everyone to experience. And so you are calling on us to share. And that can be tough. That can be big. But you do not leave us alone. You promise that I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so as we get serious about this call, individually for the people that God has has brought into our lives and as a church corporately together, we acknowledge our desperation for you. We acknowledge our need for your power. Guide us, show us, give us wisdom, give us discernment. Allow us to be your voice, your hands, your feet, because we know that a day is coming where every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so as we look to be obedient to your call, help us. We pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.